Welcome to Sound Bites. I'm Margo Stedman, Education and Community Engagement Director. We're so glad you guys are all here. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation. I know we're having a really wonderful week. If you saw me rush in a little later than usual, it's because we were at West Middle School this morning doing some outreach with Gabriel. Yaniv also came, which is unusual for us, but it's been very exciting. He took his violin and played, and Gabriel did some electronics underneath him, and it was very exciting. And we went to Marshall Middle School yesterday, so we've gone to two schools, which is also one more than we usually get to do. So we're having a full and exciting week out in the community, and now we're here today to talk with you all. So I'm not going to say much more than that. I'll turn it over. We have Mark Balden here, as always, to lead the conversation. We'll have time for questions and comments at the end, as we always do, and I hope you'll enjoy. Thanks for coming. Yes, by this time you probably remember me, the cause of more conductors' chiropractic bills as they snap their head towards me and go, what the, than pretty much anyone else since 1980. We are here to talk to our candidate for this week, and this is Yaniv Siegel. I hope I pronounce it right. Depending on the country, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it's kind of a running joke because I always like to start the interview with basically, what's your story? Where'd you come from? Where'd it start? Well, welcome again. Thank you all for being here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. So, uh, first of all, with a name like Yaniv, which is apparently not unusual in this search because I'm the second Yaniv to have visited you. Uh, but it's a slightly unusual name in America. My father is from Israel, and my mother is from Poland. So they both emigrated to New York. I was born in New York. My sister was born in New York. So uh, grew up in the city or right next to it, and English wasn't even our first language. So I spoke Hebrew with my dad and Polish with my mother. Uh, they met through music. My mother is a now-retired violinist. She was in the New York Philharmonic for 40 years. Uh, and that meant that I heard the best music in the world before I was even born. And uh, at some point, she needed a new bow when she had moved to the city, and uh, somebody said, oh, you should go to David Siegel's shop, but watch out, he's single. And they got together. And so uh, my violin that I played earlier today was made by my grandfather, by my father's father, and so I grew up in the world of music, starting violin at age four. And uh, soon after, we discovered that not far from my mother's workplace, there's an amazing opera house, the Metropolitan Opera, which has a children's chorus. And in a tour of backstage, we discovered they had a, yeah, a children's chorus that we could audition for. Auditioning for the children's chorus at the Met uh, s sounds like it should be daunting, but all we had to do was sing Happy Birthday. And apparently, if you are eight or nine and you can sing Happy Birthday in key, you're doing pretty well. I can't do it now, so, you know. I mean, it's one of those pieces. When, when you, even when you start, if you, if you ask a room full of musicians to sing Happy Birthday, you don't even say what key is in. You just say the starting note because it starts on a key that's related to the key you're in. So, anyway, sorry, that's a little... Esoteric. Uh, we will be taking a test over this in the next period. So uh, my sister and I sang in the chorus. There were more roles for little boys than for girls because the, the tradition of boy chorus persisted in the opera. Uh, from there, I ended up auditioning for some Broadway stuff and went on tour. As an 11-year-old, I was in the Secret Garden for a year on tour. 
uh, all over the United States and, and Japan. And then uh, after that, moved back to New York uh, and was in a, in a play by Tom Stoppard at Lincoln Center. And uh, all this time, I was still practicing violin. My violin was with me on tour. My mom was working with me. We practiced in hotel rooms. And uh, I ended up, you know, getting deeper and deeper into music. I also started writing music, actually, before I was even 10. So uh, that, this is all kind of the, the big picture. Sorry, you asked a simple question, and I'm giving a long answer. Oh, well, it sounds like you started deep into music. I, you didn't I had get no choice. into it. Uh, it was... It, in high school, I had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the violin, and I felt like I couldn't be the violinist I wanted to be. And it was then that I, with you know some self-thought, that I, I really realized I, I needed music in my life. And so conducting composition uh, sort of became the path I went, mind, mindful of the fact that I still performed. And so I played some solos with my local orchestra, the Yonkers Philharmonic, uh, as a violin soloist. I, I freelanced. I played chamber music concerts. I played all sorts of gigs with, uh, in interesting places and um, eventually went to the University of Michigan for a degree in conducting and composition simultaneously. Uh, I, I continued to go back to New York where I had started an orchestra that still exists called the Chelsea Symphony. And then after, after my university, uh, I worked as an assistant in Naples, Florida, with the Naples Philharmonic, and then with the Detroit Symphony, because Ann Arbor stayed home after I finished the University of Michigan. Uh, my, my wife moved there to um, do her residency and postdoc and fellowship, and she actually now runs a neuroscience lab and is an endocrinologist. So she's got a, a tenure-track faculty position at the University of Michigan, and uh, we have two young boys who are five and eight, and we're already indoctrinating them. No, I mean, uh, they already play violin. Uh, well, it's a little early to indoctrinate them into neurosurgery, <laughs> I would think. I, if they, if they want to follow her path, they're, they're welcome to. But, uh, you know, especially with string instruments, if you can get them young and, and start them, they, we know that that just helps First of all, this is a really awkward position. So when they're still flexible, it's, it's good to get that, that arm out there. But uh, it just helps with the brain development. And the, it's really hard to practice as a young, distractible boy. And so to learn the rigor of practicing daily and having expectations and meeting them, uh, it, it's great. Actually, this summer, I, I also work in a summer camp in, in Massachusetts called Greenwood, which is a really small camp. There's only about 50 or 55 students, and my whole family comes, and we, we actually stay in the same cabin that I stayed at when I was 10 years old, uh, which ha some of the holes in the wall have been fixed. Uh, um, but uh, after this summer, my 8-year-old said, I really want to play the violin. And so, again, just having the exposure to it and realizing other kids do it and I do it. Um, there, was a, there was a time when they were just starting when I realized they didn't know I played violin because I would practice when they were at school and they saw me conduct or, you know, working on writing music. But I'd, I was like, do you know your, that Papa, because I speak Polish with them, you know Papa plays violin? They were like, huh? <laughs> so uh, I do play at home now with them sometimes as well. But I, I, I can't teach them. That's just... 
no way. I don't have the patience for that. I hope that I hope that one day they get to the place where we can work together. I, I occasionally work with them. But even for the teacher, we ended up um, saying, don't go to one of our friends who's in music. Go to have a, have a relationship with your teacher that is a real teacher-pupil uh, relationship. So we found a great teacher who works with young students in a way that I could never do because that's a certain... I mean, <laughs> look at the kindergarten teachers. I think the same thing. That's a certain type of person uh, and who, has, who knows the trajectory, who knows how to engage with young students, and so forth. So... You uh, mentioned that you uh, were kind of came to a, a thought, if not realization, that um, you weren't going, becoming the violinist you, you thought you would, and you started turning towards perhaps conducting in composition as a, a, a furthering of your musicals. What was it that brought you to conducting? I mean, what was there a moment, or is it just, I mean, growing up around someone in the New York Philharmonic, and I, I mean, to say you were immersed in it is an understatement. What was it that in your head you decided, I want to do this, I want to stand up and make the orchestra my instrument? Apparently, I did that also from a young age. So they're in the, well, Avery Fisher Hall or David Geffen or whatever it's known as now, you might know, has been completely redone over the last couple of years and just reopened. Uh, so I don't know if this still exists, but the orchestra box where the VIPs would, would come in, um, had, there's an entrance directly from the backstage. And so when I was very little, my mother would take me to the concerts and let me in in that door. I don't know who I, who I sat next to, and sometimes there weren't even any seats because they were all taken. And I would just she would just sit me on the steps, and uh, that was on the violin side of the orchestra. So she couldn't actually see me there, but the violists could. And apparently, one of the violists, a friend of my mother's, went up to her and said, "It was so cute. Yaniv was waving around with the conductor." And so I guess I started that really early. Uh, in this case, she was embarrassed. She's like, oh, you, ca- you can't do that. You know, you have to be very proper. Well, whatever. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with that, uh, but uh, apparently I, I did that from a young age. I would put on recordings and, and like, put a, f- a seating chart on the floor of the, con- of the orchestra and pretend I was conducting, uh, which is not exactly what conducting is, uh, but... Uh, it was it was something that I always in, thought about, and um, it's a really amazing thing, the sound of an orchestra and this idea of taking these inanimate little drawings on, on, a, on a piece of paper, which in some ways is very specific and some ways very unspecific, and I'm talking about notation of music. It leaves so much unsaid that the act of working with people to embody the ideas of the composer or the music uh, has always been such a moving and powerful thing for me. Uh, I like working with people, and this was a way that I could do that. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question for me. I'm sorry. Um, I've always been kind of I've always fascinating with with conducting and conductors and the history of conducting and the various ways we have shifted our outlook on how music should be played performance practice what is current what do we try to you know what 
what would Beethoven have done with his own piece if he was conducting? Well, give me a recording and I'll tell you. But there there aren't any. So we go by text, we go by uh, tradition and whatever. When you look at a piece of music as a, as a conductor, how do you start deciding what would be the proper interpretation for today? That's, that's a great question. Uh, if I can say what the orchestras were like during Beethoven's time or around that time, I would say that baseline today, we live in an amazing time for symphonic orchestras, that, the, that we have conservatories and hundreds and thousands of music students graduating every year who play at a level that Beethoven or somebody from 200 years ago could really have only dreamed about. These court orchestras that maybe Haydn wrote for, you know, they, they had a professional cellist, a professional violist, maybe a professional concertmaster, and then the rest of the orchestra was made up of staff who could play instruments. It's also one of the reasons why we wear, wear tails, why we wear that formal dress from the court orchestras because the people that made up the orchestras would have been these servants of counts and dukes and so forth and they put on their best attire to perform for their, I don't know, boss. Uh, So, you know, if we're talking about period practice, I should say play not together and out of tune and we're probably closer to what it was like in some ways than the amazing ability we have today in orchestras. So... There have been, we have the benefit of recordings, but that's also a problem because as a performer, you want to ask questions of the music. So you use your knowledge of the composer, what they were writing around that time, what came before, what they might have been hearing, and then you ask questions of the score. Why is this loud? Why is this soft? What does that mean? Uh, And with Beethoven particularly, that is a tricky proposition because we know the music so well. And so sometimes it's harder to approach a piece of music that you've performed a number of times from the performance aspect and say, we're going to look at this fresh. Uh, And I think a couple times during the rehearsals, there are some places where people have been doing things because it's tradition. And was it Toscanini who said something like, tradition is simply the last person's bad performance? Uh, you know, there are times when you take time that I don't see that in the music. And somebody did it at one point, and it became standard practice. But, it, but I, have to, I have to approach each piece of music, and is that actually in there? Or if there are times, certainly, that I do take time, or I fi- fix some balances, that's coming from the, from the score. It, 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 everything comes back to what's in the music. And also having to decide what is in the music was original or was added by editors or how is it that someone in that time period would have interpreted that particular. I was reading just reading a a, a short snippet about um, someone was talking about Brahms and they were talking about the crescendo, decrescendo, the hairpins. What does it mean? And the contention was that it doesn't always mean get louder and softer. That to Brahms, sometimes it meant linger over a passage, that it isn't necessarily crescendo, decrescendo. We have, we do have recordings of some amazing things, shall I say. 
I'll I'll use Mahler perhaps as an example because he lived recently enough that his some of his disciples, like Bruno Walter, a, an amazing conductor, lived long enough that he was able to perform for Mahler and then was able to put things on recording. And when you listen to some of those recordings, like there are so many slides in the strings that we would consider tacky today. So... Um, as I said, the music itself is an imperfect notation. And we do have to figure out what makes sense for us. And living in this age of clarity, like recordings have to be so perfect. Thank you, editing. Thank you. At, well, I, um, yeah, but if you listen to some of these earlier recordings, they're, they're doing something complete. They're playing so differently mm -hmm. because they're looking at this overall picture and it doesn't line up perfectly but if if you put something out now on recording and it doesn't line up man you're going to get all you're going to get tweeted about it mm -hmm. or you know uh there at, at the detroit symphony where I've, I've worked for many years they have uh they have live stream technology in the hall built in at this point and each of their 20 masterworks is available for free live and then you can subscribe to their channel or whatever it is just like the berlin phil and you can go watch the archives and you would be amazed how many soloists come off stage and say please don't share my performance again because it's at such it's at such an incredible level we're talking about world-class performances but they know that our ears are listen to recordings in a different way and unless something everything is perfect somebody's going to get back to them and be like man they played an f sharp there and it just wasn't right you know, which, which is a shame it's a, it's a real, it, real shame it, it shouldn't be about that uh and it's also you know we have a recording you listen to it three four five times you start in a live performance you wouldn't hear that it's gone you know it's gone by you you listen to the wait a minute now i've done this myself you know like wait a minute that and then it starts glaring because you know it's coming every time. And then you listen to it ten more times, and you're like, eh, who cares? The, the New York Phil released a boxed set of live broadcasts of Mahler symphonies, which, as a trumpet player, you would really find this one amazing. But the Fifth Symphony, I think Metropolis is conducting, Dimitri Metropolis, amazing conductor, and... At that moment when the trumpet has da ba ba be ba, you know, kind of t towards the t the recap, you, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. The trumpet player double times, so he goes yep ba da ba da, totally oh. wrong. Come, it's a it's a cluster, mm, like it is really bad, but it's there, and they released it, and and the rest of the recording is just, I mean, it's live, it's awesome. And I, I can find that for you. I, oh, yeah, like, that would I be, played that, I was like, no, really? That, 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 would, have been, that would have been William Vacchiano, who was a legend in, uh, in the trumpet world. But he also... Bad rhythm. He, <laughs> actually, very unusual for him to do that. But he also had a story about Mahler V. You know, the pre-1946, pre 1947, there was no editing. Uh, magnetic tape was one of the spoils of World War II. The German magnetophone was the first... Uh, it wasn't the first recorder, but it was the first one where you had magnetic particles on a, a substrate that you could edit. Before that, the only thing tape was either wire or it was uh, steel. 
and if you got any your hand anywhere near that thing when it was running, you were in trouble. But Vacchiano talks about recording Mahler 5, and you would record directly to the master, and you could only record it in three-and-a-half or four-and-a-half-minute segments because that's how long a 78 was. And if you started and you stopped and made a mistake, you had to go back to the beginning of your segment, or if you were doing it all, you had to go all the way back. Well, evidently one time they were recording it, and Vacchiano cracked one of the last notes in the first movement. And they had to go back and start again. And Vacchiano's comment was, you think playing Mahler 5 is hard? Try playing it twice in a row with the violas glaring at you the whole second time. <laughs> but, you you know, it is right. It, it, live performance. And, and the standard of playing in orchestra, you know, the standard of playing has gone is higher and higher. But even still, if you compare yourself to a recording, you're going to be very frustrated for the rest of your life. Maybe. <laughs> um, so I have, uh, we, I have recorded a few things that are commercially available. One of them uh, includes a piece on, on this program, uh, which we'll talk about probably in, in a little while. But apparently, you know, we rec- I recorded it with Gabriel Prokofiev a few years ago, and he's had this piece performed a, a couple of different places. And even the tempos that I did with him four years ago, some of them are no longer valid. Yeah, I mean, like some of those, he's like, no, no, let's go slower here. And I was like, I didn't record it slower. But apparently, like, you know, uh, so tastes change. It's it's interesting to listen to an orchestra or a conductor record the same thing at the beginning of their careers or after doing it for 20 years. It's different. We always try to find more things in the music. So uh, there's that. So that And that recording that I did with him was was a studio recording with many mics and on the podium sometimes I said I can't really hear that and but I have a direct link to the studio and I say did you guys get that can you hear that flute there oh yeah I got it I said great so uh, it's you it'll work I've done a very different recording called Joy and Sorrow uh which is music by a New York uh he calls himself an urban composer David Chesky is his name who is an audiophile and he and his brother made a, a series of really ultra-high-end stereo equipment. David wants your experience at hall to be at home to be as close as possible to what you experience in the hall, which is a, it's a big ask. Uh, our ears are amazing instruments that, you know... So um, how we recorded this particular album uh, is only with two microphones... They are inside of a dummy head with ear, like so they're sticking out of where your ears are. There's even the shape of the ears. And for once, the dummy is on the podium, and I'm not there. Yeah. So literally, the dummy head is on the podium, and I was standing behind the podium, turning my pages really, really softly, and conducting like behind. And so when you listen to this recording, uh, it's designed actually to put on with headphones. And if you have great headphones, you will have a complete 3D sense of what it's like to be on the podium. It's called a binaural recording. And to cut and edit that, you cannot say the violins are a little too soft. There's no faders to push. Because it was, you know, if you think about how we record, 
if you've ever seen an orchestra recording, you might have 16 channels or 32. Each instrument has its own mic, and they can fix the balances. We actually had to do this old school. And the only way to make that recording, to adjust the balance, if the trumpet was too hot, it's got a great trumpet part, was to ask him to stand a little farther away. Uh, so we figure that out. But then th there's no like slicing up because it, those were much more complete takes. And so it's, it's, it's a rougher recording, mm -hmm. but it's got a great atmosphere. Those binaural recordings are amazing. I'm very familiar with David Chesky. I'm a bit of an audiophile and a record collector in that. There was a when, back when I was on WNIU years ago. Uh, we had a television or a television, a radio show. It was called The Cabinet of Doctor Fritz, and it was horror stories, but they were recorded binaurally, and you had to have the headphones on to get the full effect. I mean, you could listen to it in regular stupid, but if you had headphones on. I, I never had a chance because I was running the show, but I am told it would scare the pants off of you because you had, like, giant spiders landing behind you, and it was it was amazing. So one of the jobs I worked at in between undergrad and graduate school while I was doing this, you know, itinerant musician life in New York, I actually worked at a sound studio uh, by a guy named Charles Morrow, and he was trying to pioneer this idea of a sound cube. So when you go to a movie theater, it's surround sound, right? Basically, there's going to be a channel in front, and if you think about the corners of the room, you know, you could have five speakers, for example, and have some kind of surround sound. So he went for eight speakers. Position, if you stand in the middle of a cube and imagine the speakers all around you uh, at, the, at the points of the cube, and then the software... You could actually manipulate the sound. So I, one of the demonstrations we would do for people is you stand in the middle and there's basically a tiger walking around you. And you, the hairs on the back of your neck, if you have them, raise. Like you got goosebumps because it was like breathing down your neck. It's so real. Um, and that's, you know, again, that's evolution our ears and our th sense of 3d that's absolutely uh how we experience things like the, the there's a visceral response to to music and where it is around us uh, as you can probably tell i could go on like this for quite a while with you so uh maybe over a cup of coffee sometime but this kind of leads me into let's talk about the concert a little bit uh we kind of touched on you know getting to where beethoven came from and then how you also said uh you know how we our interpretation of it differs and how you know we different patterns of it which kind of leads into taking beethoven and a mix master and the the piece that gabriel prokofiev wrote and let's talk about that one to start with sure so the the program this week which i look forward to presenting for you and sharing with you uh is called beethoven deconstructed and the idea here is okay we know beethoven he's a pillar of classical music anything that comes after somebody like that is either a direct response or an indirect response because somebody else has responded to it the the famous story in our um canon is somebody like brahms who was such a gifted composer and yet he couldn't write his own symphony for you know 20 years because this idea of beethoven symphonies as the pinnacle of romantic or classical music was so strong. So um, 
we actually start with a Beethoven symphony on the first half of the concert, which is going to be a little bit unusual. I don't think I've ever done that. I don't know. But, no, but, but it's interesting. That used to be the, yeah. the how you did a concert. Is you started with the heavy piece and you ended with the light piece. Yep, yep. so uh, it's like getting you know the giant piece of ham first and then just eating dessert for the rest of the way. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to have fun with that, I think. So we start with Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which I'm sure many of you recognize or know. It's one of the favorites of just about everybody. The second movement of that is incredible, but the whole atmosphere of that piece is based off of dance and rhythm. And so if we take this masterwork and say, okay, what happens afterwards? Well, on the second half, we're going to open with a piece by a, a composer you may never have heard of whose name was or is Louise Farenc. And she was a French woman born 1804, mm, maybe 1805. I, I somehow always get those confused, but I, I wasn't around then. So, uh, and she was born to a family of artists and had a, a, a exposure to sculpture, painting, music, dance from a young age and ended up becoming an incredibly gifted pianist and one of the first fully tenured faculty members at the Paris Conservatory, and a composer. So it wasn't a very big avenue for symphonic music in the 1800s in, in France, but certainly not for a woman. So that she persisted and left us with some amazing works is uh, really, really impressive. And we're going to do her first piece, the, an overture for orchestra. Uh, and... Why this is relevant to Beethoven is that this is her first piece, and it's not, it doesn't sound French. And what do we mean, what do I mean by that? Is that the French music at this time was very much geared towards light operettas and entertainment music. And this piece is not that. It's serious, it's dramatic, it's much more like Beethoven than what her contemporaries, like Offenbach, you know, that kind of style. So uh, she, in her course as a pianist and a piano teacher, was very familiar with Beethoven. So you can kind of feel that gravitas and power in her music. And then we end the program with a big piece. Uh, this is called Beethoven 9 Symphonic Remix by Gabriel Prokofiev, who, yes, is the grandson of Sergei Prokofiev. And it's, this is his first orchestral piece. Uh, and what he does is take the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uses the cells, the melodic ideas of that piece, samples the chorus, in other words, recording, records it, manipulates it, transforms it electronically, and he then, as a DJ and composer, will be sitting at, a, at basically a mixing table with us and performing these transformed chorus part as a piece of electronic music. And it's perfectly connected to the Seventh Symphony as well because of this element of rhythm. You know, Beethoven's driving rhythms in the Seventh Symphony are more, actually, Irish. There's like a jig. There's, there, he was working on transcribing Irish songs, and they found their way into this symphony. And then Gabriel is saying, okay, I'll, I see your rhythm and I'll up you one. And, uh, you know, let's, let's take club music, let's take dance music from now, because he wrote this in 2011, and let's combine that with Beethoven to create some complete other journey. 
Uh, so it's a remarkable piece. Pardon me, but I thought I'd turn this off, but evidently I haven't. Come on, go away. Thank you. Um, let's t- let's let's switch gears here a little bit. Now we've talked about the concert that's coming up. Let's go back to an overview of where you think an orchestra fits in this time period and in a community like Rockford. I mean, we've talked about how this is a great era for symphonic music, really, uh, because there's so much great quality happening. But what, 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 how does an orchestra fit into this? So, first of all, I don't know if you saw or if, if anybody here saw the Washington Post article, was it a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, which was a pretty unexpected article, but it basically said that compared to the population that we have in the Midwest relative to the rest of the country, we have an oversized share of orchestral performances. Congratulations. Yay. I, I'm, I'm including Ann Arbor. You know, we're, I'm on that side, but we're, we're still in the Midwest. Uh, and I've always found that remarkable that so many mid-sized or smaller cities have orchestras and have a continued tradition of orchestral music because it's such a wealth of, of sounds. So um, there's one aspect of orchestral life that is the curatorial aspect, that is of the upholding these great traditions of performing Beethoven and before and after, and I think that we never tire of hearing that. Then there's the other part of me which says, I want orchestras to be open, inviting, and kind of a center for community. Like this morning when we were at West Middle School uh, and Gabriel and I performed for them, uh, um, I was playing my violin, he was playing the electronics, and like the amount of excitement and interest and like curiosity that was there, we need that in the hall just as much. All right, because there are ways that we don't know how music reaches people or inspires them or changes their lives or gives them an avenue for important emotional uh, expression or maybe even a career. So uh, I, I love performing for audiences because that's obviously what it was meant to be, right? But a thousand people listening to a concert have a thousand different opinions, but we're all sharing the experience together at the same time. Uh, so I see the orchestra as a hub uh, where the concert is a really, really important part, uh, the best part, in my opinion, uh, but that the doors are open to everybody. How do you approach outreach? How do you approach getting out uh, and bringing the orchestra out into the community, into the schools, into uh, uh, perhaps people who don't regularly get to see an orchestra? How do you approach that? Well, by being visible, you know, like I said, by going there myself and talking to kids. And uh, Julie was telling me that already a a number of kids have been calling in because we give tickets away. And a number of them after our performance yesterday, because we went to Thurgood, Marshall, right? Um, They call in and they come. And so the the goal of uh, outreach, or let's call it engagement rather, because... I like, I like that term a little bit better. Uh, the, in, the goal of engagement is to make people aware of what is possible out there and then to get them to come, into the, come in the door. And then when, they're, when they come in, to make them feel welcome. Uh, you know, for example, if we're talking about 
older style music. When Beethoven's Seventh Symphony was premiered, the second movement received such raucous applause that they could not go on to the third movement before they played the second movement again. (laughs) And sometimes audiences get, you know, visibly upset or flustered when somebody applauds after a movement, like after, after a Tchaikovsky violin concerto. After that first movement, it's designed to have you leap to your feet. And somebody who's never been to a symphony might feel like they should applaud and then be confused because those around them don't. So the the expectation now for attention in an entire symphonic concert is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, So whoever comes to a concert, if it's their first time, if it's their thousandth time, I want everybody to feel welcome. Uh, So I will gladly meet somebody where they are and try to get them to come back again. It is interesting because uh, in, well, remember the movie Amadeus, uh, you saw Mozart opera performances and the people are screaming in between, and which I guess was not uncommon. And I, I have heard, you probably know better than I, but I have heard that this tradition of we sit and we wait and at the end we politely applaud uh, kind of started with Clara Schumann after Robert died and she concertized and she was always in black. She was in black for the rest of her life, I think. And everything for her was, it was she wanted a very somber, very sober approach to it. See, I heard it was Toscanini, so conductors... Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you're the conductor. I'm just a trumpet player, so you, you, know, it's, it, you got it. I think we can partially blame Beethoven, uh, if blame is the right word, because... Going back to these earlier programs, when Mozart's symphonies were played, they rarely were played with four movements in a row. The first movement would open the concert, and then you might have an, a singer sing a, something with a piano, and then you might have a quartet, and then a, a, a vocal number, and maybe the second movement, and very rarely did they play the minuet. And then maybe at the end of the concert, they did the fourth movement. And uh, yeah, you're looking at it, really? Yes, really. Look at the early symphonic programming of the New York Symphonic Society, which became the New York Phil. They have amazing archives online. You can go look at the programs that Mahler conducted. You can see that this idea of of, uh, this erudite listening um, is relatively recent. Uh, And uh, why I say blame Beethoven is because, you know, with his fifth symphony with that connected third and fourth movement and with the melodic ideas that go throughout, he was actually reacting to that and saying, this is a a gestalt thing. You know, this symphony is one thing. Uh, But allow me to say that, you know, audiences at the premiere of Beethoven's symphonies didn't have Spotify. You know, like... They had to, the, the only time they got to hear a symphony was a handful of times. Uh, and how many people came to know the symphonic literature was through reductions for piano. And people, play, if you wanted to hear a Beethoven symphony, you basically had to play it at home. Uh, and so there's a very different way of listening, of hearing, uh, we're, even now, the people, the, the generations younger than us, just making sure, okay, the generations younger than us don't even uh, 
don't even have cassette players, certainly. Like, you know, when you had to listen to the whole thing or fast forward to find your spot. And then we went on to CDs where you could skip ahead. But still, it was this concept of an album. And now you don't even... The concept of an album is almost lost because you have a Spotify or similar service that caters to your taste and then produces a uh, playlist based on what the machine thinks you will like. Uh, And so we might be going back a little bit to this idea of single movements uh, and and what does that mean? And, and again, I got to be careful because I we I could discuss this with you for a very long time because you know that changes also. What was Mozart's expectation? What did he did did the first movement relate to the second movement the same way we think he wanted it to relate? Very much not. I yeah. mean, he often had a spare movement that was in the right key and he just put it in. <laughs> I mean. And, or how, how about the overture to the marriage of Figaro? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, the, the, the concert was that evening. He was like, oh, crap, I don't have an overture. Let me write one. <laughs> the overture to the marriage of Figaro, aside from being a bubbly piece, has nothing to do with the rest of the opera. That's, that's true. That's very true. And, and uh, there are Rossini overtures. There, there's a, or there's Berlioz overtures, which Rossini wrote an overture that wasn't successful, in, or the opera wasn't successful. So he said, but the overture was good. So he puts it in uh, The Barber of Seville, you know? Mm-hmm. Not as sober as we think it is, is it? So the last movement of of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony has this amazing right? This very bubbly figure. Well, if I played for you this Irish song that he wrote that he arranged a year before, that is exactly how it sounds. Okay, and so composers borrowed from themselves. Composers borrowed from other people. The the idea of originality is about how you shape the music, not if you come up with an original theme. This relates to Gabriel Prokofiev. He's using Beethoven's ideas, but boy, it doesn't sound like Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. What do you? Where is your musical base? What is like? Uh, where do you see your? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, how do I put this? Uh, Mozartian, German, uh, Russian, English. Do you have a yeah, kind of good a- music? <laughs> that's, that's serious. Good music, because good music could be anything. There's Tchaikovsky I love, and there's Tchaikovsky that I'm like, why are we programming that? Because his name is Tchaikovsky, but the music is quite mediocre, and we could do Louise Farenk instead. Uh, so, you know... Um, is every bit of Mozart good or no? Uh, I, I mean, yes, he was amazing. And I, I, gosh, I wish he lived a little longer because 36, uh, you know, could you imagine if he lived as long as Haydn had lived, if we had 50 more years of Mozart, what that would have meant? Uh, so I like things from all over. I, I like pieces that were written this year by my friends and I like pieces that were written by Pergolesi and earlier. And like, it's my favorite piece of music is the one I'm performing at the time. And it's the one that I'm learning about and digging, digging into and thinking, how do we, how do we, how do we do this? Uh, I feel that way about Haydn, actually. Uh, every, every time I do a Haydn symphony, I am floored by what he achieved with limited means, shall we call it, if we can call them limited means. Uh, and I think uh, that's that's my you know I, I feel great to, to be able to feel that way about all sorts of music, and 
It can, it can be anything. What do you listen to at home? You come home or you... My kids. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, I often am looking for voices I don't know. I, I love the, the ability that we have to find things and to hear them. So growing up, I, I was the, the question always, like, who are you? What type of music do you listen to? And growing up, I actually listened to very, very little because I had to practice how many hours a day, you know? And the idea of putting something on as a, like in my ears and walking around to a soundtrack, I mean, there's beautiful sounds out there as you're walking around. And like, I'd rather have my ears open to everything around me than to constantly have a soundtrack in my head. So uh, growing up, I didn't really choose to listen to a lot of music. And now most of the time when I put things on, there are two purposes. One, to get to know a composer or a work or to discover something, right? The kind of research aspect. Um, and two, actually to expose my kids to some of this music since uh, we have that ability. So I, I put on, I put on uh, different albums for them from Etta James or Motown, oldies, up to what, whatever else uh, I feel like works for them. Uh, and, you know, plenty of classical as well, plenty of jazz, Oscar Peterson, uh, Miles Davis, you know, classics, things that are just good music. And that's what I mean. There's just good music. Do we have any questions in the audience? Sir, yes. What makes music good? That's up to you. You know, uh, so I'll, I'll say whatever moves you is good. But in order for something to really resonate with you, sometimes you might have to listen to it more than once. And this is something about, uh, again, we're going to a lot of radio stuff. But, you know, the pop radio stations have a top 50, a top 20, a top 10 where they play these songs on repeat. And then people are, feel like they love it because they've heard it before. And we feel that way about Beethoven because we've heard it before. So uh, there is a familiar as familiarity aspect to it. Um, but you know, for me, let's say with new music or with a composer I'm not familiar with, I, I think I'm looking for a voice like, does this person sound like themselves or do they sound like, like if I wrote Mozart, Mozartian music, I would just write bad Mozart, right? Uh, so good for me is something that stands on its own, has interest on a macro scale and on a micro scale. But that's just me. For you, it could be, you know, something that, that grooves and or something that you can relax to or something that has a beautiful melody. It's all valid. And that's why I don't like to, I don't want to say what genre or what composer. Um, it's what works for us. That's the great part about art. We don't have to agree whether we like that painting or not. That's okay. We can agree the same thing about music. We, like this idea that I like it, I don't like it. Okay, well, live with it. See how you feel then. Any, any other questions about what's coming up? Oh, I have one for you. Let's talk about a little bit about um, 
youth orchestras in a town and uh, their importance and how you go about working with them? Especially because we know that public arts funding in in schools is down from where it was 50 years ago. This is so, so important that young people have the opportunity to learn an instrument. Why is it important? Well, okay, from the studies we can say it improves their math scores, it improves their focus, it improves their ability to relate to other people. From a social perspective, um, it can transcend boundaries. There are, there's a really well-known program in Venezuela, which you may be familiar with, or somebody might have mentioned before, called El Sistema, literally the system. This started decades ago, and it was a social program that said any kid in this country should have access to instruments. So rather than, uh, I don't know, go home with nothing to do or go no family because they're working or go to the streets to do bad things because you're bored, you had a place to go after school where you learned your instruments and you played in an ensemble. And then from that, there were better ensembles and then better ensembles and so on and so forth. The most famous uh, output or the, the person that came from the system that is the most famous is Gustavo Dudamel. He played violin in the system and then he became a conductor and he ended up conducting the, the biggest orchestra in this program and he's world famous conductor. Uh, Rafael Payare, another conductor. Um, Edison Ruiz, who got into the Berlin Philharmonic at age 19, who came from nothing because somebody gave him a double bass. So um, to give a country a voice on all aspects, doesn't matter what their background is or whether they had the means to pay for it. This El Sistema survived the liberal regimes, the authoritarian regimes, the conservative regimes. It wasn't a political thing. It was a realization that the arts provided a really, really important service to everybody. I can give another example of of bringing people together. When I worked with an orchestra that uh, toured Europe, I was working as assistant conductor of this orchestra that, uh, where their project was uh, a multinational orchestra that got together for a, a few days or a week or so and then went on tour, made up of Eastern European uh, countries that are part of this economic bloc. It doesn't include Russia, but includes Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Azerbaijan, so on and so forth, Armenia. And so you had a multicultural orchestra And there was this bassoonist sitting right next to a clarinetist from this contested region in Azerbaijan. By contested, I mean they've been fighting each other for their centuries. And they're brought up to think, this person is your sworn enemy. And then they have to play music together. And uh, first day, you get introduced, they say, we're not talking about politics, just music. And by the end of 10 days, they're friends. And they have a common goal of music connecting people and being above this, these issues. So youth orchestras 
are so, so important. Getting instruments into the hands of, of kids and showing them that you have to collaborate. You have to use your ears, your eyes, your brain. You have to practice. You have to, you have, you know, everybody has to be on this together because it doesn't work. If, if one person is not, you know, going at the speed, we have, we have to bring them along. So it's, it's really important to teach about community uh, and this bigger sense of what the arts are or what it can offer, how many doors it can open, and, you know, maybe you have another Dudamel on your hands, but you don't know unless they have that opportunity. Aside from music and your kids, which I knew would probably be the first answer to this, what do you do when you're not on the podium? Aside from music, uh, I play tennis, actually. That's always been, for me, a meditation. Uh, I used to play basketball, but the knees got worse and worse. So uh, what I love about sports uh, is that when I'm on a court, I don't think about anything else because the ball's coming at me at 80 miles an hour. And uh, you get in, it's, it's a physical relief, and I, I love the exercise, but also it, it is a mental relief. Uh, so I love playing sports. I love cooking. Uh, so there's that. We have a little garden now. We, we moved into a, a house in Ann Arbor uh, literally 13 days before the schools shut down in 2020. Um, and so I had three garden beds that I could grow vegetables in, and then I built a fourth one. So um, I tend to the garden. And uh, what else? Is that enough? <laughs> well, my next question was going to be, do you sleep? But um... There are not enough hours in the day. There really aren't. I mean, uh, between... My violin practicing has gone down in the last couple of years just because I didn't have the time, and now I'm, I'm going to put it back on an upswing uh, because that's really important as a conductor, but just also for myself uh, to have that grounding in, in my own instrument uh, is really important to me. Uh, but yes, I, I, I do sleep. Uh, I sleep better when I'm not at home because no kids are waking me up in the morning. And I'm, if I'm allowed to admit, I really missed that during the pandemic. Like this, I, I never had to wake up at the same time every morning. I, like in a hotel, you just wake up. Hey, musicians, orchestras don't usually rehearse at 8 in the morning. There's a good reason for that. Uh, we, we, we rarely start before 10 even. And in this case, the, we, we have rehearsals in the evenings. So uh, I really, I don't, I don't like uh, routine I like that every day of my life is slightly different and there are different things I need to accomplish every day and that I need to work on every day. Those might stay the same, but that every day is different uh, works for my brain. Any last things you'd like to say to us? Uh, oh, a question. Oh, the conductors that have influenced you, in, if, you if we can talk in particulars. I've seen a lot of conductors. Um, I've had the privilege to work with Mazur, Court Mazur, in some master classes, and Lauren Mazel. I was one of his students at a at a festival, and uh, they uh, imparted 
obviously a incredible knowledge of the repertoire, but also this idea, show more, show more, be the show more as a conductor. I've worked as an assistant with Leonard Slatkin, and uh, he's one of the most well-known American conductors, and I've always enjoyed discussing music with him because I can ask him about a certain phrase in one piece, and I'm like, isn't that like this other piece? And before I can even finish the name of the piece, he's already telling me about the connections. Uh, and that's just a great way to think about music is how it's related and where it comes from. And then one of my most important mentors was, uh, or is, Andre Boreco, who was the music director in the Naples Philharmonic. He's now in the Washington National Philharmonic. Uh, Washington. Warsaw, excuse me. Warsaw National Phil. Uh, and he just said something to me that I asked him once, you know, he was conducting the New York Philharmonic and then the Utah Symphony and then Indianapolis and the Naples. And, and I say, you know, all of these orchestras are, are, are different levels, shall we say. How do, you, how do you do that? And he said, well, the job of the conductor is to come in and wherever they are, the job is to make them better. And, uh, you know, we can do that with ourselves, strive to every time, okay, if you're hitting a golf ball, every time the goal is to hit it slightly better, right? So when I play a phrase, I'm always trying to make it better. And when I get with an or when I'm working with an orchestra, we start someplace and we go. So those are really important lessons that I've learned from several incredible mentors, not to mention my, my professor at the University of Michigan, who uh, conducting professors are so demanding and exacting uh, and they're just preparing you to stare down 80 musicians and make sure you know what you're doing when you get there. Okay, we're just about out of time. So let me, uh, a question uh, you just made me think of that uh, we've asked some of the other candidates. Are you, in, are you interested in teaching? I love teaching. Uh, I have taught some violin. I have coached conducting here and there. I coach chamber music at the music uh, camp that I work at. Uh, and, I mean, I, I love just sharing what I've had the privilege to learn and, like, passing that on. Uh, I have so far avoided, <laughs> whether on purpose or not, a long-term kind of commitment with an institution or even with a student because my life involves so much travel that... I feel like it wouldn't be fair to somebody to be like, okay, I'm your violin teacher, but I'm going to be gone these three weeks and then those two weeks. And So uh, when I have worked with people, it's usually in a master class setting or a coaching setting more than the long-term thing. But I, I love those opportunities. Any last thing you'd like to say about uh, being here in Rockford and, and what uh, what you think the Rockford Symphony could be and could become to the community? Well, first of all, Man, what a great house to play in. Uh, that's that's really important to have that magical space that both looks good and sounds good. So um, I had listened to some of the uh, pandemic recordings online, and the level of the orchestra is phenomenal. So we're really lucky here, and I, I'm sure I'm sure we realize that. Uh, so um, I think we could achieve amazing things together. So thank you for that opportunity, uh, and. Yeah, this, this city has a real sense of identity and culture that it's supporting the arts and wants it to thrive. So you can feel that. Uh, and that's, of course, 
important to me as somebody who gets to come in and, and work with the orchestra. So, so far, so good. I like to hear that. Yaniv, thank you for the hour. Thanks, it's been wonderful, and thank you all for coming. And as usual, my admonition to you is come to the concert tomorrow, and each of you bring three friends. And, and come with open ears. Yes. Come with yes. open ears for all Absolutely. the different things that we will be presenting. Thank you.